Well, if you want to have your Bibles open back to that uh, passage that we, we read earlier, Matthew chapter 20. If you've got one of Church Bibles, page 987. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was at a wedding of a, a friend of mine from Bristol. Um, and uh, this wedding started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which if anybody's thinking about getting married, is a brilliant time to have a wedding. Uh, because it means you can eat before you go to the wedding. Um, so just... That's completely not the point of the sermon, but it's it's good to note, I think, for for those attending weddings. Way off the point. I arrived on time for the wedding, Um, so it's the other side of Bristol. I drove across, uh, got to the wedding, Uh, but unfortunately, I couldn't find anywhere to park. So even though I was on time, by the time I parked and got back to the church, I was actually late. And as I came up the front steps of the church, uh, opened up the front door... What I see is the bride walking down the aisle in front of me. Um, so I sort of paused. I thought, I don't want to get in any of the, the wedding photos of the bride coming down the aisle. And then as they, they started the service, I, I sort of slipped in and just sat on the, the back row. Um, at the end of the, the ceremony, um, the vows had been said, the paperwork had been signed. Uh, the, the happy couple, Johnny and Charlotte, they were called, um, walked, came back down the aisle um, and then and out the, the doors of the church. But they immediately came back in. Uh, to, to the back of the church, and the photographer uh, appeared on the balcony at the back of the church. So, like this church, there's a, a balcony at the back. And so they came in the back doors and, and stayed at the back, and the, the photographer appeared on the back row uh, and said, ask the congregation to all turn around so that they could have a photo of everybody who'd come to the wedding. So everybody turns around, the, the, the bride, the groom, the, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids are all then at the front, and Lo and behold, there I was, last person into the wedding, front of the photo. Bridegroom, me. Um, and it, 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 was, it was, I felt a little bit awkward, um, especially having been late. But they took the photo, and, and in some ways it illustrates the, the point of this story that Jesus tells. Did you catch the, the punchline uh, when we read it earlier? Let's just land there, verse 16, the last, last words. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. I imagine if Johnny and Charlotte had, had um, organized the photo as much as they'd organized everything else on the day, they probably would have wanted more you know, people who were closer to them, nearer the front of the photo, rather than the person who came in late. I'm sure there were people who were sat nearer the front who had arrived hours early who would have quite liked to have been nearer the front of the photo. But the last was first, and the first were last. Jesus says, this is what the the kingdom of heaven is like. He's talking to his disciples, and he's describing to them what it's like when God rules and God reigns, what it actually works like. And he tells them this story. And I'm going to recap it briefly. The main character is the landowner. It's a man who is obviously reasonably wealthy. He he owns a vineyard. And during a a time of maybe economic downturn, he goes out in the morning to the marketplace to acquire people to work on his land. He's rich enough, powerful enough. He has some power because he can employ people. There are people who need to work, who need to provide for their families, and he has the power to employ them. And imagine the situation, imagine the the little square outside the front of this church. Imagine first thing in the morning, sun comes up, six in the morning, 
And people gather there. There are those that need work, and there are those that can give work, a meeting of supply and demand. And so that's what this man does. He goes out at six in the morning because he needs people to work in his fields. Maybe it's harvest time and he needs people to to pick the, the grapes off the vine. And he goes out, Jesus tells us, and he sees some men. And he agrees, verse 2, to pay them a denarius, or, or a day's wages, a fair day's wages. So let's, let's call it 50 quid. He says, if you come and work in my fields for the day, I will pay you 50 quid. And they say, great, that's what we're looking for, that's why we're here. They agree the terms, and they go to his field to work. We're told that this landowner then goes back out three hours later. So he says, uh, verse 3, about the third hour. So... In the terms of this story, zero hour, six in the morning, third hour, I think nine o'clock. So nine o'clock, he goes out and he finds more people milling about in the, in the marketplace looking for work. And he says to them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So there's no monetary term set on this, but he just says, I'll, I'll pay you what's, what's fair. Okay, so... Instead of a 12-hour day for them, they're looking at a nine-hour day, and they trust him. They say, he's going to pay us what's right, we need to work, so they too go to the vineyard. And then he goes out again at noon, and again at three, and then again at five o'clock. Now, five o'clock, the 11th hour, as it says in the passage, there's now an hour of daylight left, only an hour's work to do in the vineyard, and yet he finds more people. More people who've gone through the entire day, not done any work, just standing around. And Jesus says, he sees them and he asks them, why are you standing around? Have you been doing nothing all day? Do you not want to work? Are you lazy? And they just say, look, nobody's hired us. See, in verse 7, he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard, just, just for an hour. But why don't you go and work in my vineyard? And we... The way that Jesus tells the story, we expect to think that each time he says to these group of men, at nine o'clock, at midday, at three o'clock, at five o'clock, I'll pay you what is right. I'll be fair, and I'll pay you what is right. And so he goes out again and again. And then at the end of the day, he gets his foreman to call all the workers in and tells him to, to pay them. Settle the accounts. Pay the men. And so... And he he tells his foreman, okay, pay the guys who came in last, pay them first. So what are we expecting? What are we expecting them to be paid? They've worked one hour, a twelfth of what the first guys have worked. We're expecting them to pay a a twelfth of 50 quid. So what's that? Four quid-ish? And yet, here's the shock. They get paid... A denarius, a day's wages. They get paid the full 50. They've done an hour's work and they're paid the full 50. Now, imagine, we're there, we're there, edge of the field, the guys have come in from doing their work and they've been lined up. So you've got your, your five o'clock guys at this end and stood next to them are the, the three o'clock guys and then the 12 o'clock guys, the nine o'clock guys and then the, finally at this end, the guys that have worked the full day. And the foreman comes and gives the guys at this end of the line 50 quid. 
here's the guy at this end and just looks down the line and goes, they've got 50 quid. The guy's feeling generous today. If they've got 50 quid, you can almost imagine them doing the sums in their head. That means if they're getting 50 quid an hour, I'm going to get 600 quid. This has turned into a bumper day. The excitement levels must go up. The expectation. But instead, as the foreman works his way down the line, he gives each worker, each worker 50 quid. They all get a full day's wages. No matter how much they've worked, they all get one day's wages. Just for a second, turn to the person next to you. How do you feel if you're the guy at this end? If you're a six o'clock guy, you've worked all day, and you get paid just 50 quid. Just turn to the person next to you. What's your gut reaction? Just share it with them. Anybody brave enough to shout out their, their, their gut reaction? Yeah, it seems unfair, doesn't it? You'd be gutted, you'd be annoyed. Well, that's exactly what happens here. We can understand the response of those who have worked the whole day. Verse 10, so when they came to those who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble. And we read this, we hear this and go, yeah, I get it. I, I really get it. But Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. When God rules, when God's reigning, in God's plan, this is what it's like. And maybe, just maybe, that begins to put us on edge. Is God really good if this is what he's like? I wonder, what do we expect God's kingdom to be like? If there is a God, and maybe you're here, you're looking in at Christianity, you're looking in at the church. If there is a God, what's it like when he's in charge, when people go his way, when his ways are, are enforced and followed? Is it like a, a business? Is it like the way that school is run? Is it, is it like, I don't know, maybe the best countries that we've, we've ever come across? I think we expect it to work in the same way that we experience everything else. We expect the kingdom of God to function like other kingdoms. In fact, we expect it to function like the rest of life, where the more work that you do, the more you get out. So we expect it to be like, well, like school. You go to school and everybody says you've got to, you've got to work hard. You know, you should work hard, you do your homework and, and put the extra effort in. And if you work hard, then you'll get good results. And if you get good results at, say, GCSE, then you'll be able to do what you want at A-level. Be, do subjects that you're good at and you enjoy. And, and if you work hard there, then, then you'll get into university or you'll get onto the apprenticeship scheme that you want. And, and then, you know, eventually, if you keep working hard, you're going to get a good job. 
and if you get a good job, you work hard at it, you're going to get promoted, and then and, and on and on and on. That's, that's how we expect life to work, isn't it? That's how we tell our kids that life works. Work hard, get a good job, life will be good. Do we really expect that God's kingdom would work exactly the same way that everything else works? Because here's the problem, life doesn't work well. Not every kid who works hard in school gets good exam results. And not every person who works hard at their job gets promoted. That system is broken. And the Bible tells us that God doesn't work like we do. In Isaiah, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Even in the Old Testament, God has given us clues that we shouldn't expect him to work like we work. Jesus says the first will be last, the last will be first. He says it twice, actually. If you look just up, from where we started reading on your Bible, page, um, chapter, uh, verse 30 of the previous chapter, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then at the end of this story, this parable that Jesus tells, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus is subverting our expectations. It's not like we expect it to be. But let's ask the question, why does Jesus have to tell this parable? Why does he speak this way to his disciples? Well, if you look at the immediate context, again, just look a little bit back in your Bibles. Jesus has just met a rich young man, and he's been speaking to the disciples, saying that God can do impossible things. And actually, again, the world doesn't work as we think it does. God's kingdom doesn't work in the same way. Because the world looks at a rich man and goes, you've got everything. God must be pleased with you. And God looks at the heart. And Jesus says it's impossible for a rich man to get to the kingdom of heaven. But God does the impossible. And the disciples look at themselves and look down at what they say. And they say, God might do the impossible. What about us? Okay, well, we're not rich. In fact, we've, verse 29, uh, sorry, verse 27, Peter says we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus has said to them, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. He gives them this big vision of the future, these rewards that God will give them. Verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. See, the disciples have given up everything to follow Jesus. They've given up their homes. They've given up their jobs. We know that some were fishermen and were told that they dropped their nets to follow Jesus. They They give up their work, their employment, their source of income to follow Jesus. And we see Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, leave his place of work. He leaves the tax collector's booth to to follow Jesus. And these disciples have given up everything. What they're going to see is that God is going to be unbelievably 
generous to those that have given up a lot less than them. See, they could look around their group and say, well, we've given up everything. Jesus doesn't deny it. But what's coming up is that they're going to see people who've given up an awful lot less. And God is going to bless them. See, they're going to see they are Jews. They're going to see non-Jews, people who've never followed God's rules, who've always stuck two fingers up at God. They're going to see Gentiles come and become part of the church. They're going to see people who've rejected Jesus, even Jesus' own brothers, his earthly brothers, who reject him, who call him insane. They're going to see those people, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, believe and even become prominent in the church. They're going to see the thief on the cross. Somebody who has lived his life in a way that is utterly dishonoring to God. They're going to see that man turn to Jesus at the very last moments of his life and receive a promise from Jesus that this day, I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. And he's never going to give anything back. The thief on the cross has no opportunity to start counting the cost of following Jesus. He'll never do anything. He'll never give up a home or he'll never come down to church early to set up. He'll do nothing. He just dies. And these disciples are going to have the temptation to say, hang on, we've given up so much more. How can they... How can they be rewarded like this? Look at what we've done. Don't we deserve more? That's the temptation for them. And so Jesus tells them this parable and says, this is what God's kingdom is like. You know what? It's going to seem unfair. It's not going to seem equal. As you look around in God's kingdom... You're going to see people who look a lot like five o'clock people. In at the last minute. Done very little work. Deserving nothing. What is the expectation of the disciples? As they came to follow Jesus, what were the, the terms of agreement? You notice in, our, uh, in, in the parable Jesus tells in this passage, the terms are pretty clear. Jesus the landowner comes to see the men in the marketplace and says, look, if you work for me today, I will give you a denarius. And they agree. It's fair, it's just, it's, it's fine. In the same way, Jesus has called people to follow himself. And in Matthew's Gospel, we, we find that he's always been upfront about the cost. And so he's gone to, to Peter and Andrew as they're fishing and James and John fixing their nets and and he calls them to, to follow him. And they know that that means leaving behind their employment. It means leaving family members. In the same way he said to his disciples, and not just the twelve, but beyond that, if you follow me, whoever wants to be my disciple, chapter 16, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus shows grace. He calls people, he shows them undeserved favor. That's what grace is. 
But he says it will cost. I'm going to show you my favor, but to follow me will be costly. They are the terms of agreement again and again. He says it's going to be hard. He talks about, um, in chapter 10, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You'll be handed over when they arrest you. They will, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. These are the terms, these are the agreements that he makes with his disciples. And in the same way, in the same way he makes an agreement with us. Come follow me. I will save you. I will take away your wrongdoing. But now follow me, count the cost, deny yourselves. And so just like the disciples, maybe we need to think back to the terms of agreement. Yeah, we are to deny ourselves. We are to consider the the cost of following Jesus and count it. Christian life is wonderful, but also difficult. It's joyful and yet hard. It's costly. As God calls a people to himself, calls all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. Again, think of the the parable. Think of the the five o'clock people, people maybe who are saved late in life, who trust in Jesus and and then go to be with Jesus fairly shortly afterwards. Or the three o'clock people, those who who are saved. And and actually, life seems to carry on pretty much the same. Life doesn't seem to be too hard for them. Or twelve o'clock people, why, you know what, following following Jesus is is kind of uncomfortable. They're kind of counting the cost. And maybe there are are six o'clock people who seem to follow Jesus costs everything. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who think, I, I know exactly which one of those categories I fall into. And the problem is, is that as we are called together as a church, there are different people around us who counter the costs in different ways, some obvious and, and some not. And our temptation is to look around and say, hang on, I deserve more than them. I've counted the cost more than more than the person in the pew next to me. Maybe it looks like this. Yeah, but I'm single. You know, I have to be, I have to do this on my own. It's all right for other people, like, they're married. They haven't had to count the cost of singleness. They haven't had to count the cost of being uh, sexually pure without somebody to, to share that life with. The cost for me is, is much greater. Or, or maybe it's this, that, you know, actually, you look across the way and think, yeah, but we might both be single, but I'm always going to be single because I'm attracted to people of the same sex. And I know that, you know, I can't act on, on those desires within me. At least for that person, there's the hope of marriage because they're attracted to people of the opposite sex. They've got hope of sexual fulfillment in this life. But, but not me. The cost is so much heavier for me. Or maybe it's this, it's, yeah, that person was born into a, a Christian family. You know, they, they were brought up by parents who, who took them to church and they never had to endure rejection like I have. If I want to follow Jesus, my family are going to turn their back on me. 
some of us feel as though we are six o'clock or nine o'clock Christians and we're looking around at a room full of five o'clock Christians. Don't, don't I deserve more? Don't I deserve more than, than him or her? That's the question. And that's the temptation that the disciples are going to face and, and that maybe we face. What does Jesus do? He tells this story and he points them to, to the landowner. So three truths about the landowner. The landowner is just. As these men begin to grumble, the men at this end of the line, as they look up and as they think, oh, I deserve more. The first thing the landowner does is he points out that he is just. Verse 13, he answered one of them, he picks one man out, picks out of all these grumblers, he picks one out, his friend. You know, and that sort of, you just using it in a, it's, it's not a very friendly way of saying something, friend. Singles him out. I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? And you can almost imagine the little internal monologue of this guy, this one guy who's been single out going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, I, you know, we did make that agreement. Yeah, I have received what was promised to me. You promised one denarius, a day's wages, and, and I've received a, a day's wages. And, and it's almost as Jesus is pointing out, look, the landowner never had to employ that man. Didn't have to. He showed him favor, didn't he? By going into the marketplace early in the morning, calling that man and the others out and saying, I will give you work. He shows him grace. And the landowner is just. He gives what has been promised. But notice too that the landowner is generous. Take your pay and go, verse 14. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. I know he wants to, to be generous. Yeah, he'd have been well within his rights to have paid them the fraction of the day's work that they, they'd worked. But the landowner is, is overwhelmingly generous. Imagine you are the five o'clock man. You've, you, you've barely got a sweat on. You know, you've, by the time you've walked to the field and walked back again, you know, done a little bit of work, pulled, picked a handful of grapes, and you're probably going, well, it's better than nothing. You know, I got a little bit of work. And then suddenly the, the foreman gives you the wages for a whole day. And you think, I just don't know how you respond to that. Just thinking, how, how wonderful, how, how generous. Why? Lana just gives him a day's wages. It's not deserved in any way, shape, or form. Any way, shape, or kind, but it's unbelievably, wonderfully kind. Isn't it? Unbelievable. Thirdly, the landowner has the right to do what he wants with his own money. Verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want 
with my own money. And again, six o'clock guy is there going, yeah, yeah, you do. He's got no comeback. He can't in any way, shape or say, no, but you don't, it's his money. And he is employing people. He's doing a good thing for them. Of course he has the right. It's inarguable. The one who holds the money, the one who gives the reward, has the right to do with it as he pleases. The landowner is God. God is just. God is generous. God has the right to do as he pleases because he's God. God is the landowner who shows grace to each of the individuals. The guy that works 12 hours, the guy that works 9, the guy that works 6, the guy that works 3, the guy that works 1. Each one he employs. Each one he gives them the ability to provide for their families. Each one has no right to demand work from the landowner. Every person who God calls to himself is a recipient of grace. So the question is, how do we respond to God's grace? And especially within the confines of the church, as we look at one another, how do we respond to God's grace? For the great Bible truth is this, is that we have been shown grace. Not one of us deserves for God to treat us kindly. Not one of us has lived well enough to deserve God to to look on us and smile at us and, and give us a day's wages, let alone all that God promises for us. Not one of us was capable of dealing with our own debts and our own mess and our own brokenness, and yet God, in his great mercy, sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And that is true for every single member of the church. That Not this church, the true church, God's people. The entrance fee is the blood of Jesus. And so every one of us is the recipient of grace. Every one of us. And yet that grace may seem imbalanced. As we look around, the temptation is going to be there to say, you know, every Sunday I come down early. Every Sunday I'm here working hard. How can it be right that I get the same as that person who who just turns up? Or how can it be right who somebody who's born in this country, who are worshipping God, costs them nothing because it's free and you're able to, to worship God as you please? How can it be right that they deserve the same reward as, as me? Somebody who's been forced to leave my country so that, because I want to worship Jesus. Or because somebody who's given up. Well, the disciples give us the list, don't they? Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake. How can it be right that we would all receive the same reward? And yet, God is just and God is generous and God has the right. And actually, when we see grace, Grace in people who are undeserving. And and let's face it, we we see that undeservedness in others far easier than we see it in ourselves. Because we're good at comparing when it suits us. 
It's so easy to see somebody who's undeserving and be blind to our own faults. How do we respond? Do we respond with a bad eye? Just look down at verse 15. That last little phrase, or are you envious because I am generous? That's what the landowner says to the friend, the six o'clock friend. And actually, the the literal translation talks about having a bad eye. Do you have a bad eye? Do you see wickedly because of my generosity? John uh, John Piper, who's a pastor in the States, writes this about that. He says, what does that bad eye refer to? It refers to an eye that cannot see the beauty of grace. It cannot see the brightness of generosity. It cannot see unexpected blessing to others as a precious treasure. It is an eye that is blind to what is beautiful and bright and precious and godlike. It is a worldly eye. It sees money and material reward as more to be desired than a beautiful display of free, gracious, godlike generosity. When we see other people and we see God's grace, God's favor shown to others, what do we see? Do we see something beautiful? Or are we too busy looking at ourselves and thinking, but don't I deserve more? Because they're the two options. So you guys think about Christmas and and the the people that you're inviting to your Christmas carol service. God is good and God saves people who come along and they turn to Christ and they give their lives to him. What will our response be? Option number one is this. Option one is to go, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. That person? Do you know how that plays out? That plays out in the way that I drive. Okay? I'm driving along and I see somebody make a mistake. Okay? Do something stupid as they drive. Maybe cut across me. Okay? Or maybe I see somebody speeding past me. And my heart says this. This this sermon just got prophetic. Um, My heart says this. I hope they get what they deserve. Sometimes I think, I hope they crash. Somebody said to me after I preached this last week, said, maybe you should pray that the police would catch them. And I think that's probably a better prayer. But ultimately, I can see grace and I go, no, I want them to get what they deserve. I want them to get what they deserve. I want their wickedness, their selfishness. I I want them to... Ultimately, the Bible says what I want for them is I want them to be judged by God. I want them to go to hell. No, we don't think of it like that. We don't put it in those stark terms, but we want people to get what they deserve. The problem is, is, if I get what I deserve, I get hell. If I get what I deserve, God does not owe me. I owe God. So I could respond, I could respond like Jonah does. When God sends him to, to share a message of, of God's anger at sin... And Jonah doesn't want to go because he doesn't want God to be merciful. He doesn't want God to show grace. 
But the other way we can respond is with delight. With joyful delight that God saves those who do not deserve it. We can look at ourselves and say, Jesus died for me. I was not deserving of heaven. I was not deserving of coming to know God. I was not deserving of the peace that reigns in my heart, of the joy that God puts in my heart. I was not deserving. But God showed that grace to me. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see God show that grace to other people? Isn't it wonderful that the person in the row next to me, God has shown grace to them? And when we turn and see God's graciousness, what we do is we say, isn't Jesus great? Because as Jesus saves 5 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 6 o'clock people, on each and every occasion, no matter where people have come from, no matter what cost they're going to have to bear, Jesus is on it. Because the saviour of every single person is Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we'll delight in grace. We're people that are have what I call compulsive comparison syndrome. We spend so much of our time comparing ourselves to other people. And what this parable tries to do is to say, don't do that. Don't be those people. Be people who delight that Jesus saves. All sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds in all sorts of different situations, he saves. He is the the God of grace. He's shown grace to us. Maybe you're here this, this, this afternoon, this evening, and you're looking in at Christianity. This is the God who we worship. This is the God of the Bible, a God of grace, who calls people who are utterly undeserving, who calls people and is always just, who always fulfills his promises. This is the God who in every single case calls people who are utterly undeserving. And he blesses them. And he favours them. And he promises to save them to the very end. For a new heavens, a new earth. That we will be in God's kingdom forever. Why don't you just take a minute just to reflect, pray. And I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Father, we ask your forgiveness for where we have looked at other people and in our hearts said, I deserve more. Forgive us where we have been blind to our own sin, our own rejection of you. Or forgive us for where we have, have forgotten about Jesus. We're too busy looking at ourselves, looking at others. Oh, we pray that we might delight in grace. Grace shown to the the most unlikely, the most ill-deserving of people. We pray that even this Christmas we might see people turn to know Jesus. To be blessed beyond any deserving. 
And Father, we pray that you would bring joy to our hearts as we see your grace in each other. And we pray in Jesus' name.